0: that uh, that song has. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Now as you're turning there, if, uh, if you have ever had kids, uh, if you've ever watched kids, whether babysitting, uh, maybe nieces or nephews, uh, or maybe seen somebody parent their kids in a grocery store. Uh, so that pretty much should be all of us. If you have ever had any sort of interaction with kids, you know there are times when we have to Help them make a choice. Yeah? Yes. yes. Okay, smaller group, I might ask for a call and response maybe this morning. Also a smaller group that may fail epically. So there are times when we have to help kids make a choice, and that usually goes something along the lines of this. Okay, Johnny, the way I see it, there is two things you could do here. You could do this, and it would lead towards such and such. Or you could do this, and it would lead towards such and such. Now, Johnny, you choose. And sometimes, you know, because we're, we're trying to help teach the kids to make choices. Sometimes they, they just wrestle through it, and they don't know. And sometimes the answer is so obvious to us, we get a little bit more animated and, and a little bit more excited. And we tell, well, you, if you chose this way, things would happen here. And if you chose this way, it may not be as good for you. But you've got to choose. I think sometimes God does that for us as well. I think it's part of our growing up process. I think sometimes, though, he gives us more than just two choices. He gives us several choices because he knows that any of those could work for us. There are other times, though, I think he's pretty direct. I think he's pretty pointed. And he says, okay, child of mine, here's two choices. Choice A or choice B, you choose. I think our passage today is really one of those types of times. Now, we've been studying the book of Hebrews for quite a while, and we've been really looking at the phrase, Jesus is, and then filling in what he is. Hopefully, we've gotten a much deeper, fuller picture of who he is. This morning, we come to a passage, chapter 9 through the middle of chapter 10, where I believe God, through the author of Hebrews, is giving us one of those moments of, okay, you choose. I'm not going to complicate things this morning. I'm not going to throw in Scripture from uh, in the Old Testament, from other places in the New Testament. We're going to simply let the book of Hebrews teach itself. We're going to let the author of Hebrews give us our choice. Now hopefully leading up to today you've had a chance to read through this passage. And hopefully you've allowed the Holy Spirit to prompt and guide your heart as you've read. I know that with a passage of Scripture that's this big, I could probably go... Uh, spend several weeks, you know, making much more uh, smaller sermons or larger sermons, whatever you want to say. I could dissect it a lot more. Ultimately, though, I think this large section of scripture is God saying, Here's what I want you to choose. Here's two choices, two ways of worship, two systems, two covenants. This morning, I've chosen not to use the words old covenant and new covenant intentionally. In our culture, in our society, we have a fascination with the new. We, if there's something new, we want it. Ultimately, at the end of this morning, I want you guys to make a choice, and I don't want my choice of words to affect your choice in the end. So I'm going to do my best to present an unbiased view of the two ways that I believe the author of Hebrews is laying out this morning. Before I do that, I'd like to ask God's blessing on our time in Scripture. Lord, we recognize that as we open this book, that it is your, uh, one of many ways that you choose to communicate with us, but it's one of the most um, visible, most obvious ways. It's a way in which you share your heart with us. Lord, I ask that this morning you would allow me to stay out of the way of what your word needs to say to us. I ask that what we hear would be your words. Uh, That we would sense your heartbeat and that we would learn from you this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here we go. The first way, as described in the book of Hebrews, to worship, the first system, the first covenant, you guys can follow along. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship. And a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in the tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was a second room called the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the ark's cover, the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these things in detail now. Verse 6 When these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place, and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins, and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. All right. so as we begin to look at these two ways of worship, as we begin to look closer at these two covenants, remember that this first way was set up by God. It was the system that God gave his people to be able to relate to him. So in this first way, we had a physical location. Verse 1 mentions a place of worship here on earth. The physical location had specific pieces to it, and the text describes those pieces. It had two rooms, one room with a lampstand, a table, sacred loaves of bread, and that room was called what? It's in here. Go ahead. Holy place, thank you. I'm going to ask you what the second room was called in just a little bit. So go ahead and look in, a, in advance. The second room called what? There we go. Had a, a, uh, an incense altar, a wooden chest covered in gold called the Ark. Uh, that had some historical and important remnants of Israel's past in there. And above the Ark were cherubim with outstretched wings. I'm not going to go into details as to what those the, the potential potential meanings of those things in those two rooms could have been, because the author of Hebrews didn't do that either. So what we can deduce, though, from those things, from the description of the elements involved, was that there was a very specific way things were supposed to be done. Specific tools, specific elements involved. There was a right way. There was a process And what followed the brief description of the two rooms in the tabernacle was a description of what the priests would do in those two rooms. First, they would regularly enter the first room to perform their priestly duties. And we can assume these were the daily sacrifices as required by the law. That's what took place in the first room. Now in the second room, the priests would only go in there once a year. We know this a day to be called the Day of Atonement. And it was when, as the second half of verse 7 says, it was when the priest would offer blood for his own sins and the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance. Blood in exchange for sin. Now, this idea of blood for sin was elaborated a bit more in verse 18 and following. It says that is why even the first covenant was put into effect with the blood of an animal. For after Moses had read each of God's commandments to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and sprinkled both the book of God's law and all the people using hyssop branches and scarlet wool. Then he said, This blood confirms the covenant God has made with you. In the same way, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and on everything used for worship. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. Now verse 22 has caused many people to question the Christian faith. Oh, why, they would say, would we follow such a, a barbaric, cultic faith practice that required blood, that required sacrifice? We would not want to do anything with, with this sort of religion, especially in our civilized, properly cultured society. Blood, really, they would say? Out of people with this mentality, it would not be terribly beneficial to mention that in today's society, blood is still spilled regularly. In the sacrifice and worship of self. Things like apartheid, the atom bomb, abortion. Those are just things that start with A. Now back to our passage. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Under the first system, blood sacrifices were used and they were used with a purpose. Verse 13 of chapter 9. says, under the old system... The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Cleanse their bodies from ceremonial impurity. Uh, Maybe said a different way, these were sacrifices that dealt with outward things. Verse 10 also touches on it. It says, For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect... Only until a better system could be established. A different translation reads, This, this was gifts and sacrifices that dealt with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body. So chapter 9, verse 13. It does seem to say that the blood from the bulls and the goats, those sacrifices did cleanse people from their outward impurity. And these sacrifices were done repeatedly over and over and over again, because as we know, life has a way of making us dirty. Our Hebrews text, though, goes on to say that even though these sacrifices were done daily, and even though they took away outward impurity, these regulations, or excuse me, these regular sacrifices did not take away sins. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. The old system... The first system, under the law of Moses, was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all times, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You jump down to verse 11. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. So these sacrifices, they may have offered forgiveness for outward impurities, but the blood and bulls and goats did not remove sins. Now, by saying removing sins, I'm talking about something much deeper than just outward wrongs. I'm I'm talking more about something to the core of who we are. Something more towards our consciences. Chapter 9, verse 9. This is an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. In Old Testament thought, the conscience was the place uh, where the core of who someone was resided. So if the blood of bulls and goats could not fix that, then perhaps something more was needed. If their feelings of guilt never went away, but Opposite, they were reminded of their feelings of guilt year after year and sacrifice after sacrifice. Then, where did that leave the people? And on top of that, besides the consciences not even being able to be cleansed, this system kept everyone except the high priest out of the presence of God. Chapter 9, verse 8 By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open, as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. Not freely open, as long as this system was still in use. So we're looking at the first system, and let me recap what the author of Hebrews has said thus far. In this first way, there is an earthly location, a tabernacle, with specific rooms, specific tools, specific a protocol. Only the high priest could enter into God's presence, and this would continue as long as that system was in place. Blood sacrifices offered regularly, over and over, were required. And though cleansing outward impurity, these sacrifices did not cleanse people to the core of who they were. These sacrifices, as the author said, could not and did not take away sin. That's how the author of Hebrews describes the first way, the, the first system. Now let's take a moment and look at the second way. The second way also involves a tabernacle, but it's different than the first one. Chapter 9, verse 11. So Christ has now become the high priest over all good things that have come. He has entered that greater more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of the created world. Huh. So it is a tabernacle, but it's in heaven, not made by human hands. Yet it still does have a high priest, like the first one. Only this time the high priest is Jesus, and it says that he is over all good things. Now jump forward 13 verses to verse 24, and we get another description of what Jesus did as high priest in this heavenly tabernacle. Chapter 9 verse 24 says, for Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. So he's appearing on our behalf. Now, although there's no description of elements like candles or sacred bread, the high priest does still go into this other room, the most holy place. We see that in verse 12. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, Jesus entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Are you starting to see some similarities between the first way and the second way? Hopefully you are. There's still a tabernacle. There's still a most holy place. There's still a high priest. But if you're listening closely, you're going to start to really hear some major differences between the first way and the second way. Notice, there's still blood. Verse 23 of chapter 9 alludes to that. The second half of it says, But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. And if you jump back to verse 14, the second half of it says, For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Now we can assume the phrase sacrifice means that there is blood. And if that's the case, then we have other verses to look at also. The second half of verse 26 says, But now, once for all time, Christ has appeared at the end of the age to remove sins by his own death as a sacrifice. Look at the beginning of verse 28. So also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice. In chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. This is why when Christ came into the world, he said, You did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, Look, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written about in the Scriptures. Okay, so we've got a heavenly tabernacle that involves a high priest, and there still involves blood. But this time, it's not the blood of animals, it's the blood of Jesus. Jesus himself was sacrificed. Now, if we push pause, we we realize that here again, a lot of people will struggle with this part of the Christian faith. They would say, why would a God the Father, a loving God the Father, sacrifice? Why would he kill his own son in order to pay a debt? I could see how there would be a rub with this. But it's when we change the, uh, the thinking of how we approach this, that's when it really starts to make an impact. It's when we realize that Christ's sacrifice was not an act of cruelty or brutality. It was the most amazing act of sacrificial love by a God who himself chose to become the sacrifice. That's when the perspective starts to change. This morning, I'm not arguing or defending a faith or trying to to convince somebody of the necessity or or lack thereof of Christ's sacrifice. This morning, we're laying out two ways, a first way and a second way. And in both ways, there is blood and there is sacrifice. Now, as we move on, you'll see even more major differences between the two ways. The first major difference is this. Jesus' sacrifice was one and done. It was not a repeated event, not an annual event or a daily event. Chapter 9, verse 25 and following. And Christ did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again like the high priest here on earth who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. The end of verse ten, chapter 10, verse 10, also says that this was a once-for-all-time sacrifice. And listen to chapter 10, verse 12. It says, But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. I love the end of that verse. It's something we'd miss the significance of if we didn't know the the cultural setting that it was in. The end of it says, and then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. He sat down. How many of you work a desk job? How many of you spend a lot of your time after you wake up sitting? How many of you are now sitting now? Okay, good. Now we're getting some involvement. Very good. In that culture, when people went to work, they did not go to work to sit. We do. They did not. They had tradesmen. They had people working in the fields. These people were on their feet all day. Even the priests, even the pastors of the day stood. You see that in verse 11 of chapter 10. It says, under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day. Offering sacrifices again and again. So for the religious worker and for the blue-collar worker, they stood at work. When they went home, when their job was done, when they were finished, that is when they sat. Let that sink in. When Jesus sacrificed his life, Once, good for all time, when his work on the cross was done, he sat. He sat at God's right hand. Where we know from previous passages that he continues to to work by interceding for us. But his work of sacrifice is done. Never to be repeated. So the sacrifice in this second way is one and done, once for all time. Now the next major difference is what the sacrifice accomplishes. Chapter 9, verse 14 and 15. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised for them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins that they had committed under the first covenant. Let all that sink in. Let me read it again. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal Spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. You see the differences between the first and the second? What did this verse, verse 14 and 15, say was cleansed our consciences which was something the first way couldn't do what did this verse say regarding our ability to worship god and i say by worship it alludes to being in god's presence the end of verse 14 says christ did that so that we can worship what did the end of verse 15 say about our sins We'd be free from them. They'd be taken away from us. Again, something the first covenant did not do. I'm pretty sure the author of Hebrews really wanted to drive home this last point, that our sins would be removed, for this wasn't the only time he mentioned that. Listen to how much he repeats it. Chapter 9, verse 26 and following. The second half of it says, but now once for all time he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. 27, and just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ died once for all times as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. Listen to the joyous result of that removal of sin. This is chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. No more sins equals no more sacrifices. Okay, repeat after me. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. No more sins equals no more sacrifices. I love how the end of chapter nine ends, verse twenty-eight. It just brings this point home. Uh, twenty-eight verse, uh, like I said, the second half of it. Christ will come again not to deal with our sins because they're gone. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. In this way, with our sins removed, when Jesus returns, it's for our salvation, to save us. Conscience is cleansed. Sins removed. Sacrifice is done. And it gets better. We become different. In the second way, we become different. Listen to the words used to describe what happens to us. This is chapter 10, verse 10. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all time. So we are holy. Now, verse 14, chapter 10. For by that one offering, He forever made perfect, holy and perfect, those who are being made holy holy. Verse 16, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. So no more regulations written to follow with bread and candles and arcs and things. It's written on our heart. And all of this, all of this amazingness is confirmed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so. Confirmed by the Holy Spirit. Let's review the second way that the author tells us about. There is once again a tabernacle. Only this time it's a heavenly one built by God himself. There is once again a high priest who goes into the most holy place. Only this time it is Jesus Christ. There is, once again, blood sacrifices, only this time it's not the blood of animals, but the blood and the sacred sacrifice of the God of heaven and human flesh, Jesus. In this second way, the sacrifice happens only once. Not daily, not annually. This second way, the sacrifice was able to cleanse the consciences, the core of people, and it was able to take away people's sins. Something the first way was not able to do. In this second way, people are made perfect, holy, and have a new covenant written on their hearts. And this second way is confirmed by the Holy Spirit. This, according to the author of Hebrews, describes the second way. Two ways. Two ways to worship. Two covenants. Two systems, if you want to call it that. And here's where we get to where I started. I think that today, And every day, God is saying, okay, child of mine, you choose. Which way do you want to relate to me? Which way? You decide. You've had a, a chance this morning to hear the first way and the second way. Perhaps you're still on the fence. Perhaps there is comfort for you in your structure, in your rules, in your format. So maybe you're genuinely wrestling with which way. You want to relate to God in. Now, as is so often the case, the author of Hebrews helps us as we wrestle. Chapter 10, verse 9. Then Jesus said, Look, I have come to do your will. Jesus cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. This morning, I think God is giving us a choice. The first way or the second way. I don't believe he's going to force us. I don't believe he's going to coerce us. He's going to allow us to choose. It's our choice. Do we stick with the way that Scripture tells us has been canceled? Or do we go with the way that is all about Jesus? It's your choice. I think God gives you that choice. And if you've never made that choice and you want to make it today, we'll have an opportunity to do that. As a pastor, as a spiritual guide, I, I think the way you should choose is pretty obvious. But I think it's something that you still have to choose. We're going to play a song uh, on, the, on the screen with uh, one person's choice emphasized. And During this song, think about what you've heard. Think about what was said. And If you want to take steps today, to choose that second way, I'll be in the back in the prayer corner. If you've realized this morning that you have chosen that second way, but you've kind of waffled back and forth between the first and the second way, today is as good a day as ever to say, all right, I want to continue to choose the second way again and again. So let's listen to how one person describes her choice. Those of us who have grown up in, in the church, the choice does seem easy. Um, but in reality, we have a way of, of going back to our own systems, our own regulations, our own uh, rules. So this is a choice that we have to make, I think, every single day. We can choose a system or we can choose Jesus. Let's stand. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing one more song as a congregation and then we'll be dismissed. Lord God, this morning, I want to declare that I choose you. And God, I ask your forgiveness for the times when I have chosen the ritual or regulations or rules as ways to relate to you. I know that I can only relate to you through Jesus Christ. And yet it is still easy at times to choose the first way. So I ask that you help me regularly, every day, choose you. Choose Jesus. Choose the second way. And I ask that you would help us as a body of believers choose that also. And may that affect who we are as a gathered people, choosing that second way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.